give a little bit of a recap before of what we had been talking about leading up to where we're going to be today, which is in Baroque, um, right in the middle of the Counter-Reformation. Um, so, Reformation. Um, the Protestant Reformation came out of um, right on the on the heels of the Renaissance. So, this does anyone know where this is? Yes, Vatican City, St. Peter's, um, and this was the really high point of the Renaissance where we have um, just enormous um, sculptures all around. I believe there's 88 sculptures, and you can see on the ground level here, I think there's one person right here, so you can put this guy next to, you know, they're just enormous sculptures. So all of the, um, and we've talked about the pilgrimages and how all of the cathedrals were in Gothic and Romanesque were centered around this pilgrimage idea where they had all of the aisles on the outsides of the, um, of the part where you actually would sit and worship. There were aisles around that part that would go in basically um, a little pathway so that you could visit the relic. You wouldn't come to the church to worship necessarily. You were coming to see the relic in the church. And um, the entire church was built around this relic. And then you would come as a pilgrim around. You would see the relic. You would you know, give your contribution. And you would move on to the next place of your pilgrimage. And... Um, and so the entire architecture for about, you know, this 500 years was really centered around the pilgrimage, the relics, and all of this theology in the Catholic Church specifically. Um, and it really was an enormous driver of economics and um, villages and anyone who lived in a town at this time that um, was in a place of pilgrimage, that's where you were working. You were, work, you were working for the church, you were working um, to build one of these places, to maintain it. Uh, it was a really, um, we talked about the politics of it and the corruption of it. And so when St. Peter's was built, does anyone um, know how it was funded? One of the main ways that it was funded. No, that's, that's exactly right. Indulgences was um, this philosophy of the Catholic Church where you could be, you know, forgiven in the afterlife and not have as much punishment if you gave a large contribution to the church, which is, you know, pretty nice for the church, right? So you, it's this whole theology that Martin Luther was very adamantly against, and his one of his most famous theses came out of, um, which sparked the Protestant Reformation. So it was right at this time, at the end of the Renaissance, sort of the, the high point of the Renaissance, I should say, um, that this sparked this huge debate. So now we've got 
Martin Luther, he's having in Germany all these, he wants to have this council free of the papal see, so he doesn't want the Pope to be involved. He just wants, um, do, does anyone recall what Luana had kept saying that, um, that one Protestant Reformation tagline? Sola Scriptura, Scriptura. Yes. Sola Scriptura, Scriptura, Sola. Only Scripture. Scripture only. And so Martin Luther didn't want the Pope in on his council meetings in Germany. He wanted to be able to have this conversation with a group of church leaders only looking at scripture. But um, the Pope was not so inclined. So this is where we have um, the Council of Trent, which was the Pope um, and his council of church leaders who came together to kind of decide an answer to the Protestant Reformation. <clears throat> um, does anybody have a good handle on the Council of Trent that wants to talk more about it? So, essentially, and I am, um, you know, just this is from my reading of it. I'm not, I'm definitely no expert on the Council of Trent, but basically, this is where the Catholic Church that we have today came out of many of these um, meetings, I think there was 22 or 23 specific meetings over, um, um, let's see, it was from 15, I think it was about 20 years of time that these different meetings took place, and their basic goal was, was to counteract literally the counter-reformation they would call it the catholic reformation they don't they don't even want to you know discuss the fact that it was brought on by the protestant reformation but um we have this split protestants over here catholics over here the catholics are in control of government so a lot of protestants have been driven underground um, Martin Luther comes up and and there's lots of debating happening so so it does actually put pressure on the Catholic Church eventually to look at things like indulgences and the corruption and the uneducated priests that they have in the rural areas so some specific things came out of the Council of Trent that really turned the Catholic Church in a different direction and one of those things was um, seminary, where now the priests had a standard of education that they were required to have. Um, we also had the um, condemnation of uh, indulgences for the sake of indulgences. It was moved from the public space. The confession was moved from the public space to the private space where you can go into the little booth and say your confession. Um, <clears throat> and, and then we had, specific to art, we had um, a condemnation of anything that was to be perceived as um, artwork that would create some sort of um, lustful 
or distracting situation. So there was in the Renaissance, what was very common in all of the art and sculpture, does anyone? Naked bodies and nudity. So, um, you know, in the Sistine Chapel, the high Renaissance period, we have Michelangelo's ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. Has anyone been to the Sistine Chapel? Do you notice that there are draperies over the bodies? Well, Michelangelo made this fresco in the Renaissance era. So they were all nude in the Renaissance era. When the Catholic Church had the Council of Trent and decided to steer that in a different direction, they came back and added the draperies here. So there's lots of little flowy things that are in specific places. They didn't even want baby Jesus to be naked. So we have lots of kind of redirection of this high art from the Renaissance. Um, if you go there now, you'll see some of the work has been restored to its original, but if you've ever been there, it's enormous, and so it would be extraordinarily expensive. And, you know, it's not really on the priority list, I don't think, to declothe all of the clothed people <laughs> now. So, um, but this is where this also, this Council of Trent had recommendations about music. And it may be interesting to note that our little tribe isn't the only one who's had extensive arguments about where instrumental music should land. And the Council of Trent had a very specific meeting to talk about music. They didn't land anywhere. They left it up to the local churches at the end. So I thought that was interesting. So then we have, um, the Protestant answer to a lot of this um, Catholic art coming through. The Catholic, uh, the Catholic Church was pretty much, and the Anglican Church were, were the ones that were funding all of, all of the art all throughout Europe for the most part. A lot of that had to do with the, the indulgences. You know, if you, if you were wealthy and you wanted to make sure that you were in heaven, you were gonna give a lot of money to the church. Um, so now we have a few examples of Protestant painting that is not funded by the Catholic Church and it has a very different feel than this particular piece. This is very um, heavenly, there's lots of drama. Um, it's very much focused on heaven and the afterlife and creation, telling stories of the Bible. What do we notice about this piece? A lot of clothes on. <laughs> That's true. Almost everyone's head is covered. That's true. Are they worshiping in the woods? They're in the woods. There's, yeah, like there's actually a landscape there. Right. It's not just kind of figures on a field. So we have a lot of the Renaissance um, tools like atmospheric perspective and perspective being employed, but it's much more naturalistic. It's what they would have normally seen, and it was portrayed, it's portraying actually a scene from the Bible, but it's 
it's looking like what they would have seen in this part in this time period in the Protestant Reformation because the Protestants didn't have church buildings so they were having services outside or in barns or in people's homes and so this would have been a very Protestant scene at this time um, but then we also have the dark side of the Protestant Reformation in art um, there was a a string of um, what is called iconoclastic attacks that were in Germany primarily. So uh, we talked about iconoclasm somewhat when we talked in, about Byzantine and how um, you know the the ideology and the philosophy of the graven image and idolatry, they really took that to heart. And so the Protestants would go through and actually organize and go attack Catholic churches and destroy as much art as they could. Um, so this is one example of just a defacement of a um, relief statue in a cathedral in Germany. And then um, here, this is just a, a painting of, it's sort of a historical painting of what would happen, the looting of churches. So they weren't, they weren't always just destroying art, they were looting and stealing from churches as well. And um, so there was mostly the Calvinist branch of the Protestants were responsible for this. So this did a few things. It created a lot of angst obviously between the Catholic Church even more so than there you know there was a lot of angst anyway because the Protestants had been driven underground and the Catholics were in control of most government spaces but this was um, sometimes a violent reaction to the Catholic Church and so in some places this actually helped to foster freedom of religion because the Catholic Church was so afraid that they, that they would be targeted, that they just gave them space to do their thing. They were like, you can go worship in your space. We won't bother you. You don't bother us. We won't bother you. But then it also um, it, it created a, um, <coughs> the Catholic Church clamped down in other areas. And so um, it wasn't, it was a very stressful time, and a lot of art was destroyed in the meantime. Um, one other part of the Council of Trent was these different branches of the Catholic Church, one of which was the Jesuit um, branch of the Catholic Church. Is anyone familiar, is anyone familiar in any way with the, okay, can you talk, talk a little bit about the Jesuit branch? The Jesuit High School, but that's, I don't remember a ton about it. I mean, it was founded as a missionary wing and primarily throughout Asia um, with um, Ignatius Loyola and Francis Xavier really trying to spread Catholicism through that part of it. I don't really know how it developed architecturally or anything like that in Europe, but um, it, was, it was very much a missionary and education perspective of the church. That's precisely exactly what I was hoping you would, you would point on because um, that's that very point of it being the missionary side of the Catholic Church is why this particular Baroque architecture ends up all over the world. So this is 
probably the first, this is credited as the very first um, Baroque architecture. So um, is there anything that sticks out to you automatically first about the facade that's different? If you remember in Renaissance and in um, Gothic and in Romanesque, think about those facades and the target audience and then think about this and tell me if you see any stark differences right away. And some of you haven't been in here for any of those classes, so it's totally fine. Yeah? I don't see any like windows for the natural lighting to come in. Good point. Is it the cross? At the top? That's one, that's one point. The columns are actually just barely like relieved off the facade of the church instead of being an actual column. It's very, it's very flat. Mm, good point. Facade. I've heard high compared to the ceiling. Right. They're like normal five doors. Okay, <coughs> right, you can see this guy and it's like, if he walks up there, he's probably just slightly smaller. Talk more about the portals. They don't have the big reliefs of them in the, in the walking room. Right, we're missing a lot of relief architecture here that was on the Gothic and Romanesque churches. And what were those reliefs normally there to do? Tell stories so now people can read more, maybe? Is it more literate? More literate, but also, this is actually supposed to just be a church. So all of those reliefs, you know, a lot of the themes we're talking about, heaven and hell, and this is why you're on your pilgrimage, don't give up, you don't want to go to hell, you know, that kind of messaging um, was really central to those Gothic and Romanesque churches because it was all about the relics and the pilgrimages. So now the Council of Trent has redirected the church trying to um, focus more on spirituality, the one-on-one the -on -one relationship with God, the um, not so much on the relics and the pilgrimages and the indulgences. They're really trying to rein in all of that corruption. Yeah? Well, in the Gothic and Romanesque, it's high, tall, tall windows. And you're trying to tell stories and bring it in. This is more insular. There's no lighting. We focus in on ourselves and, and, and our inside spiritual values and develop that way. Mm -hmm. So it, it sends a different message. You basically, architecture's been used all through the years to make a statement. Exactly. And, and mm -hmm. like, like when you go to any of these countries like uh, Israel or Spain, or it's Every cathedral, is kind of, it's in your face. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> For example, when we go when we go to Jerusalem, that place has changed hands so mm -hmm. many times. So when and, and when uh, Elena built the church right there, and uh, it, it was uh, abused several times, but right there beside it, with within fifty foot, is this huge, tall, tall prayer tower and it was like Suleiman says well you know we're going to let you Christians have your place but 
by gum, we're not going to let anybody be taller than us. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, architecture, I mean, this is why I love talking about this, because you can see into the heart of the people at the time that it was built, what what the belief system was, and this is no different. Um, This is the floor plan of this particular church. This is in Rome, and so we have what what's similar first to Gothic and Romanesque? It's kind of in the shape of a cross. It's not, yes. as, not as dramatic as some of the others. It's a little more um, understated, but it's still there. Um, do you notice there's a lot missing? So, yeah, we have no narthex, which is the lobby. There's not really... There's no, you just walk straight in to the sanctuary portion. There's no aisles for pilgrims. There's no reliquaries. So there's no place to house all of the, the things, you know, like Mary's robe or, or any of the things. There's none of that. So we have basically, in our terms, um, an auditorium, and then these are little radiating chapels. Does this remind anybody of anything? Maybe anybody that grew up in the Church of Christ? It looks like your pulpit's like front and center too. The, I mean, we call it pulpit. Yeah. Yes. Like where the message is mm-hmm. delivered is front and center. So these would actually be little, like you could walk into these little, and they're kind of enclosed spaces. Like like classrooms. Like classrooms. Yeah, you know, in in, in all the country churches. Yeah. You know, you pick a place, that's where your class was. So this is the simple, this is where you meet for worship, and these are sort of offshoot little, I mean, this is, I, I could, redraw this in like four churches that I went to growing up in the Church of Christ. It's really interesting to me. And this is back in the, you know, 16th, 15th century. Well, you know, uh, I've been to Otter Creek a long time. <clears throat> and you see no vestige, no lobby. At the old building, we had a little bitty small lobby and every, that's where everybody talked. And it was so <laughs> tiny. I mean, you're like <laughs> talking to your friends. <laughs> mm-hmm. Look what they've done here. Mm-hmm. They opened up that lobby. So that there's no place there that you can meet with everybody. Hey, what's going on mm-hmm. in your life and everything else? And so yep. that's what this suggests, too. Yeah, absolutely. It's reeling in the focus to the main thing. They're trying to pull it back to the main thing, you know, taking away all the extra but what they did, oh, go ahead. On that last one, I'm yeah. assuming that the compass rope's there for a reason. And I, I vaguely remember something about, um, isn't got in Gothic cathedrals, it was facing a particular direction? Yes, it the portals. It indicating that it's not. Yes, that that's way. a very good point. I'm glad that you said that. The portals were always facing a certain direction, and I can't actually remember. East. East? Okay. So this is sort of showing that. And, and what you will see in, in coming um, churches is that they are often now, instead of built around a relic, they're built around an existing something, a courtyard that's already there, a, a public building that's already there, and 
they don't demolish, they just try to build it within the space that they have. So that's something else that's interesting. But one thing that, that comes out of this is now we've simplified the architecture actually quite a bit. Um, but we haven't simplified the grandeur of the interior. And in fact, the Baroque goes way beyond. It's super dramatic. Um, and this is where Trompe-Léol comes into play, which is that super high realism painting style that almost looks three-dimensional. And um, it, it's painting architectural detail where before they would have created it actually in high relief sculpture, but now they're painting it on. So you can see this detail here. It looks like this cloud is hovering over the architecture, but in fact, all that architecture is painted there. Um, so it looks, you know, the shadow is falling on the architecture and that's creating that three-dimensional effect. But that's all paint. It's all paint. That's old to Da Vinci, because up until that time, everything was perfectly flat. Mm -hmm. He was working on shadows, he got shadows and everything mm -hmm. to show perspective. So this is embracing the Renaissance style while rejecting the theology of the church at that time. And so um, it's not a total rejection of the art. And in fact, the Catholic Church, while the Protestants were rejecting all forms of art in the church, mostly, Martin Luther kind of comes back around and doesn't completely reject it like Calvin does. But um, this is where the Catholic Church is stating their um, dominance and in their theology, in that Council of Trent, they... Um, wanted to make sure that it was known that you, when you are looking at that image, you are worshiping the human aspect, not the image. So in the Council of Trent, they were, they were very specific in saying, if you're looking at an image of Jesus, you're worshiping Jesus, you're not worshiping that image. And that was sort of their you know, justification and reaction to the Protestant message of, all images are bad and idolatry and they were sort of <coughs> taking that so this is their response in this dramatic presentation of the insides of their churches they were making a statement here about their theology this is more examples so you see we have there's some relief sculpture here they're really embracing does anybody know what what this capital is from? What, where is this derived? Yes, so this is the Ionic Corinthian columns here, and then they have um, lots of Roman and Greek elements. Again, from that Renaissance period, they're bringing that back in, and then they're laying on top this um, Trompe-Léol style of creating that 3D effect just really dramatic. This is another example that's somewhat of a departure, and I wanted to show you this floor plan too. So this is where we have the Baroque, um, and can anybody see any similarities to this and 
our floor plans from Gothic and Romanesque. There's some similarities. You kind of have that Latin cross, right? So the Latin cross is that square cross. And so you kind of have that here, but it's a little elongated and kind of organic. And it's, it's not perfectly symmetrical, like, you know, all of the churches before had been very symmetrical, very much focused on geometry. And this is in the same way, but it's really asymmetrical now. And it's, it's not so concerned with the cross, although it's, it's still there. Um, and then this one is really kind of exciting to me. So this is another, this is also in Rome. Um, and does anybody want to take a guess at why that floor plan looks like that? the Star of David, which, um, yeah, it was really interesting because now the Catholic Church has given more, um, more control to the local church because now their priests are um, required to actually be on campus, be educated, whereas before they were kind of, the bishops could be there or not. Um, and so this particular church was created, and the, um, the one who paid for it to be built wanted it to be the Star of David, or at that time it would have been called the Star of Solomon. And so, um, and then we have this really, all of the curves, this is very typical of Baroque, lots of curves, asymmetry, kind of um, inventive, this corkscrew spire is the first one like it. Um, and there's a cross at the very top. You can't see it in the right, but here on the left you can see it. And so um, we have now, instead of it being flat, we have curves, and it just sort of follows the movement of wherever it was built and, and sort of trying to reflect and complement whatever it was built around. And so um, I'll just, I'm sorry? This would have been in the mid 15th, uh, 1500s, so 1520s um, to 1570s in that span. Um, and so one thing that I just, in preparation for next week, we're going to talk about colonization and American Protestantism. And so this um, church is in the Jesuit kind of architectural theme is where we come from. This missionary, um, Protestant, uh, colonization, all of these things, the, the Catholic influence on Protestant buildings. Because remember, the, the Protestants would try to take over um, any, any church buildings that they had either ransacked or that were abandoned for some reason, they would try to come and, and worship there. 
So they were influenced, certainly, by the Catholic Church, even if, you know, they were not, they were rejecting a lot of it. So how did the Protestants, if Baroque, you're saying is this, the Protestants, this for is, the most part? So Baroque is, fund, I'm sorry? Like, I'm wondering how they funded all this, all these things, because the Catholic this, Church, you have all the money pouring in, and the Protestants right. don't have that. So this is... A ca- definitely Catholic. Oh, okay. Yes. Okay. So this is where the birthplace of kind of, because you're right, the Protestants were meeting in the woods at this point. They didn't have their own churches unless they ransacked a Catholic church and took it over. And so they were kind of taking what they could get at this point. So next week we're going to talk about how that happens and how the, the Protestants came to have their own buildings and what they chose and um, kind of that simplicity model and all of those things. So, any other comments or questions? One, one, one comment. I don't want to talk too much, but I, I was in Heidelberg last year and, and, and somebody on, on the uh, little group over here said, Mr. Tour Guide, why do they have roosters on top of that church, but then they have crosses on that church and he was a little Turkish guy and he said well it's like this the Catholic churches had crosses and the Protestant churches had roosters of course he, he thought he was pronouncing it properly so I thought, <laughs> well he probably had to write it Protestant yeah Protestant mm-hmm. yeah that's that's a really good way to think about it yeah they were in protest of yeah Catholics <laughs> right. <laughs> so, any other comments or questions? I think we're five minutes early, which I did not think it was going to happen today because there was a lot. <sighs> going back to the whole Jesuit comment, are you saying that this architectural style spread really throughout the world? Yes. Based on missionary practices at that time? And yes. Yes. So you can find examples of this Baroque architecture all over the globe. It just went completely, it went viral, as you say. <laughs> um, because the Catholic Church focused so much into this part, into this wing of their church on, and it was in that colonial, so you can see Portuguese Baroque and Spanish Baroque and, you know, and Asian, lots of, of especially in um, South America and all of the places, if you think about coloni- Catholic colonialism, this is, this is the basic plan that they took yeah, with them. Of Europe into the rest mm-hmm. of the world. Yep. In Africa, like there's, it's, it's really phenomenal. So, um, I just loved this floor plan so much because I thought, this is this is my church. Like this is the simple little churches that you go into. Just the floor plan, not the other stuff. But this, the floor plan. You know, just walking straight into the sanctuary and having the classrooms on the side, and you just looking straight up to the altar. And um, well, the more the more you have time to mingle in the lobbies, the more uh, people get dissatisfied. Did you hear that sermon? Mm. <laughs> so all of a sudden, that's the scent, and they don't want the scent. That's a good point. 
keeping the focus on the spiritual. Well, thank you, everybody. I really appreciate you coming and um, look forward to next time. <laughs>